Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's another 10 Things episode with Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Trevinsky. And this week's subject is King George III. This one inspired by Andrew Roberts' magisterial new biography, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III. We talk about King George's view of colonies and the American Revolution. His own relationship with the Enlightenment, his belief in the people rather than the British aristocracy, the fact that he he lived through two revolutions, first the American Revolution and then the French. And also discuss his issues with mental health. Mad King George, he's been called. Jefferson met King George III in 1786 and claimed that the king turned his back on him in a mulish bitterness about the revolution. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss historical events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I wanted to talk to you about your writing of the Declaration of Independence. You wrote, the history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Sir, a great deal of your initial disagreements have to do with governance and taxes and the rights of American citizens. Sir, it wasn't just George III. It was the British ministry, effectively his cabinet. It was Lord North. It was uh, the Parliament of England, but he embodies the sovereignty of England. And we discovered that he was hostile to our cause, that he was sending not only his own troops to crush our rebellious spirit, but that he had hired foreign mercenaries, the Hessians, to do so. And so uh, public opinion turned from our anger mostly at the British ministry to a greater anger that included George III. And I stand by what I said in the Declaration of Independence. You know, one problem here, the Stamp Act, or quartering troops in our houses, or or some other abuse. We accept some of that. These things happen in, in the troubled relationships between colonies in a far-off home country. But when you see a pattern, and that pattern evinces a plan to reduce a people to absolute servitude, when it's a pattern of tyranny and oppression, you can no longer say, well, this, this is just an unfortunate event. You have to, at some point, realize that this is deliberate and that if you allow it to happen, you will not possess the rights of human beings. And that's what drove us finally into revolution in the summer of 1776. There are many condemnations of King George III, political ones, sir. What did you know about him personally? He was a farmer and he loved farming, so I admired that. He was, uh, in some ways, a minor figure of the Enlightenment. He was an astronomer. Uh, he, he played with clocks. And I had, as you probably know, 29 clocks at Monticello. This was the age of the clock because a clock was a sort of a miniature model of the solar system. He cared about his people. He was born in 1738. From that instant, he was a member of a royal family that, that was outside the regular path of life. One person is born in a hospital in Edinburgh. Nobody would know the difference. And so the idea of monarchy is, is just patently absurd, irrational, 
offensive to the human spirit. And these people live so differently from the rest of us that they eventually cease to be able to represent our interests and our needs in any significant way. Sir, you say you stand by those words that you wrote. You know, in reading this document today, you end with a condemnation of one particular group of people writing, he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Do you stand by that, sir? I stand by the principle behind it, that that Britain was trying to find allies amongst the, the tribes of our western frontier, which would be western New York and western Virginia and western Carolina. And they were offering them emoluments to attack our settlers on the frontier. Of course, both sides were doing some of this. This was a propaganda piece, the Declaration of Independence. But yes, there were two groups I singled out. They were stirring up Native Americans to attack frontier settlements and, and, and to use butchery. And secondly, they came to the slaves of the South and offered them freedom if they would rebel and join the British army when they weren't going to give them their freedom no matter what. This was just a terrible uh, piece of, of, of chicanery to create domestic trouble for us without any real commitment to liberating black people. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. Keep in mind, sir, that this was a piece of propaganda uh, at a time when we desperately needed all the arguments we could have uh, to secure our independence. Good day, sir. Good day to you. Welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, another 10 Things discussion between Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky and the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and this week, the subject for discussion is King George III, who became King of Great Britain and Ireland in 1760 at the age of 22 becoming the first royal heir born in Britain in 130 years. At the time he became king, the British monarchy was heavily criticized as being more interested in matters in Europe than at home, and he tried to change that. And while Thomas Jefferson placed the blame for the revolution squarely on George III's shoulders, King George was not really in a constitutional position to exercise any real authority. The king understood that Parliament was the true sovereign in Great Britain. He did make a very good villain for Jefferson, however. And with that, shall we go to point number one, which is King George's view on the colonies and the American Revolution. So I think an important element of King George's thinking was he saw the colonial system as very much just that. The colonies were intended to support the mainland. They were intended to be subservient 
They were not equals. They were not sister nations. And so the concept that they would rebel or demand more authority from parliament or more of a role in parliament was so beyond his conception of what the empire was supposed to be. Of course, later on, the British Empire evolved into a more of a commonwealth system, but that that was very much not the case when in the lead up to the revolution. And so, you know, there are a lot of caricatures, I think, about King George III that don't work, that don't make sense. Lots of them, which I enjoy very much, are in the Hamilton musical. But in this instance, a lot of the characters are actually pretty spot on because he did not see the colonies as worthy of the same representation. Home countries seldom do see their colonies as full equals. That's just the nature of that uh, institution. George III was on the throne for 60 years. He's really a figure of the Enlightenment. He belonged to the system of constitutional monarchy. He wasn't an absolute king. There was no longer any sense that the king was God's agent on earth. He had to work through parliament. And in fact, he never issued a a monarchical veto in the whole course of his tenure. So he had a very circumscribed role, more by persuasion and patronage than anything else. Uh, He was a good and thoughtful man. uh, And the empire... The British Empire made its largest growth during his time as the King of England. Uh, Victoria um, inherited all of that. But the phrase, the sun never sets on the British Empire, really dates to the uh, British uh, colonization of New Zealand and um, and Australia. And George III played a, a significant but not central role in all of that, if he'd never been king, many of these things would still have happened. So my question to Lindsay, I've been thinking about for two weeks now, is was it was did George the Third lose us when he could have kept us? I mean, if if he had if he had behaved differently, could he have saved the colonial situation? Just a small question to start off with, huh? Why not? I wanted to see you gulp. <laughs> well, let me add one quick caveat to the to the description that you gave, which I totally agree with. He was, however, very much not a figurehead like the monarchy is today. I do think that's an important distinction as well. He's he no Elizabeth II. No, he did have authority, but he was not like many of his predecessors. So... I don't think that the American Revolution was inevitable. I think some sort of evolution and some sort of change was inevitable because the colonies were growing at such a rapid pace, both in terms of population, but also in terms of their economic power, that they were not going to stay in the system that had first began for long, especially because so many of the colonists consider themselves to be British citizens, were very well educated, were very well educated on the British political tradition and the tradition of rights and representation and protest and opposition. And so uh, I know we both read the Andrew Roberts biography of King George III, and he makes this really compelling argument, I think, that the colonies were too politically mature to stay in that sort of colonial position for long. They just had too advanced understanding of how politics worked. Now, I don't think that independence was the only outcome available. Maybe given the the differences in understanding of the political situations and the difficulties with communication, which I think we should talk about more because I do think that communication element is so important, 
it, it, a good solution perhaps wasn't possible, but a commonwealth could have happened if both sides had been willing to consider that and amenable to that. And certainly the colonists would have accepted that early on. It was just a matter of the king not accepting that and parliament not accepting it. And then by the time they maybe were willing to think about that, the colonists were no longer willing to accept that option. Both Jefferson and Ben Franklin proposed something along the lines of a Commonwealth relationship that we would all continue to recognize the King of England as our sovereign, but there would be substantial home rule that we wouldn't answer to Parliament. We would answer to our own Parliament, our own Continental Congress or or Congress or whatever it, it might be. They were ahead of their time. That's what eventually evolved for Canada, New Zealand, Australia. So the Commonwealth was the solution for several hundred years, but now the, the pent-up rage over enslavement and colonial subservience and the high-handedness of, of the British Empire and so on, the racism, has finally found expression that it couldn't have found in 1955 when Queen Elizabeth was wandering around the empire. So we're in a really interesting moment about this. And, and let me, before we go on, David, I just want to recommend to our listeners, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III by Andrew Roberts. It's getting the highest accolades. Uh, it's, it's some people say it's one of the he's one of the great biographers of our time. Um, it's a splendid book. It's long, but it is a really remarkable book. The Last King of America: The Misunderstood Reign of George the Third. If I could offer something, we look at this situation of the American Revolution. Let me go back to that original question. That he was barely forty. I don't think he even was forty. Um, in 1776. He was in his late 30s and was obviously very influenced by politics in Great Britain and also the reports coming to him uh, from America via General Thomas Gage, who was the commander-in-chief of British forces at that time. Gage described Americans as bushmen who were out to uh, ambush the British soldiers and when King George III heard about the Boston Tea Party, his response was, I am hurt, which is pretty far from this devilish character that Thomas Jefferson painted him to be. Yeah, he was a very sensitive man. That was pretty, that's something that came through pretty clear to me in my reading and studies on him. He took his rule and his leadership and command of his subjects very seriously. He cared a great deal. One of the great conundrums of this moment is the challenges posed by communication. I think King George III had every intention of having good information, but he never went to the colonies. He didn't really know that many people who had been to the colonies. He didn't really know what their life was like. And so he was very um, dependent on the people who were sending reports back. And, and to your point, a lot of the British generals and the British naval commanders were initially pretty disdainful of Americans, American society, and American capabilities. Well, a couple of things about this. First of all, the population of America, of, of the colonies, at the time was around 3 million. Uh, when Jefferson became president, it was around 6, but at this time it was around 3. So this enormously growing population... The population of Britain was only 8 million at the time. I don't think that George III understood this. I don't think they understood America. They didn't understand that the Americans were already kind of beginning to emerge as a people, the vast geography of the thing, the exploding population, the economy. And so I think he was operating from really poor information. That's one thing. Secondly, 
the Enlightenment has to play a central role here because this is not 1600. This is not 1700. This is the, the late 18th century, and these people have read the volumes of the Enlightenment, and they are full of this sense of the rights of man. This wouldn't have happened 100 years before this. Henry Steele Commager, the great historian, said that America is the Enlightenment project, and the American Constitution is the Enlightenment's highest uh, watermark. So the Americans were automatically going to chafe at the idea of a colonial subservience when they're reading all of this stuff. You know, Adams said that he that we had already been independent for a long, long time, beginning with the Mayflower, because you wind up on a foreign land and you have to form a code, you form a social compact, and we had been essentially governing ourselves for 150 years before we finally declared independence. And so I don't think George III understood any of that. He saw us, I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong, but he, Lindsay, but he saw us essentially as he would see India, that this is some far-off place with peoples who are semi-barbarians, and they may be English in some sense, but they're out there in the woods, and they are utterly dependent upon our supervision. And let me set you up for this. We won the, the Seven Years' War at enormous cost to the British Treasury. Certainly the colonists should pay for some of that by way of taxes, shouldn't they? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, so, some of King George's misunderstanding is understandable because the population growth, the expansion that was kind of happening in real time and people weren't really sure what the emotional connections were going to be between the colonies. These were things that were unfolding and continued to surprise the people who were living through them. Two elements that he fundamentally misunderstood, and your point about India is a really good one. The white colonists that settled in North America saw themselves as staying in the empire. And so it wasn't like British went to India and subdued a whole other population. Now, of course, there were other populations that were either already in North America or brought to North America, but the people that we're talking about are the white colonists here, the people that King George III cared about were the white colonists. And so they didn't see themselves as a as a different people. And, and that's really essential and a part that he should have known because they they left. <laughs> they weren't, you know, it wasn't like they just sprouted out from nothing. They were very much a part of this experience. He wasn't bringing light to darkness in some third world thing. He was talking to his fellow citizens, but he, 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 he conceptually failed to understand that that equality was going to come back to bite. Yes. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, 10 things about King George III. We need to take a short break, but we'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation of, well, really about Thomas Jefferson and historical figures from his era. This week, 10 things about King George III. And there was some a comment you made in the last segment, Lindsay, about um, poor communications existing during that time. And I, I think that's a real fundamental issue to talk about if you want to go back to it. I, I think of King George, this guy who was what, 37, 38 years old at this time, and how much he must have been influenced by the powers in Parliament, these wise old men. I can't not think that that had something to do with George's thinking, his philosophy, his behavior. It did. And we were talking about, you know, how this was very, this event, the revolution was very much a product of the moment, the enlightenment thought in the, that it wouldn't have happened a hundred years earlier. And so the second point that I had wanted to say is that that's true, certainly in regards to the enlightenment thought, but it's also true with all these other factors that we're talking about, that the colonies are continuing to evolve and to mature, that they're continuing to develop a sense of their identity and population growth and economic importance, but also that they had been neglected and they called it benign neglect for the majority of their history. It wasn't until the Seven Years War period and the post Seven Years War period that this more intentional government came to be. And we talked about the tax, you mentioned the taxation piece. All of those things played a very important role. And I don't think the revolution would have happened without any of them. It wouldn't have happened without the Enlightenment ideas. It wouldn't have happened without that benign neglect. It wouldn't have happened without the tremendous population growth and evolution of society as quickly as it did. And just a, one quick point. Franklin said, time's on our side. We're going to outpace them both economically and demographically, that uh, who, who's going to be the, the superior and who's going to be the inferior uh, entity here it won't be long before we uh, eclipse Britain in every possible way. So we don't need to get over upset about these things. I'm going to move on to point number two, which always comes up in discussions about George III, and that is his mental health challenges. Some thought it was a, a severe case of bipolar disorder. There's some new studies that um, bring in uh, possible arsenic poisoning. What do you two think? It is true that there was mental illness there. Just what was the cause, we don't know. George III was well aware of it. He wasn't uh, you know, a mad king who didn't realize this. And he distanced himself from the day-to-day -day running of the British Empire because he knew that he was no longer up to it. Yeah, so I find the argument that it was a severe case of bipolar disorder and the mania that can come with that to be the most compelling argument. There are a number of symptoms that he had that would not be present in the case of something like porphyria, which is a blood disease, or arsenic poisoning. The fact that he had uh, an episode earlier on and then it seems to diminish and then came back suggests that it was this intense form of bipolar disorder and especially early on the treatment that he received the first round likely made it worse the treatment at the time was often quite cruel it treated a person as though they were not aware of what was happening and so it was sort of intended to shock a person back into their right mind um and it was it could be quite violent and so what is so sad about this, he knew that he couldn't control himself. He knew that he was a danger to those around him and to the state. And he was better off than the average person with mental illness of his time. 
But fortunately, he was a constitutional monarch, not an absolute monarch. So if he'd been Elizabeth I or James I, this would have been a much graver crisis. But by the time that George III was in his third and fourth decade of being the constitutional king of England, there was such a, a well-developed ministry and bureaucracy, and there were prime ministers, including Robert Walpole, who were able to maintain the continuity of government. One of the things I noticed, Lindsay, in reading The Last King of America by Andrew Roberts is that they had no 25th Amendment. What do you do when your monarch is disabled? It's been a crisis from the Wars of the Roses all the way until very recently. And so when you have a, a mad king, let's just use that term for the moment, now you have to work around this, whereas we would invoke the 25th Amendment, make sure that the continuities were maintained, even without it. I've just been reading a new book on... In theory. In theory. <laughs> just been reading a new book on Watergate, and the 25th Amendment played a role there, and it, it was invoked with Donald Trump. I mean, the, it, it's not it's never been fully implemented, but the fact that it's there means that there's an informal 25th Amendment to James Schlesinger, for example, in the last days of Nixon's administration, sent out a message to the military around the world saying, if you get a nuclear order, check with me first. So we have, a, we have mechanisms. They didn't at that time. And so what do you do with a king whose who's last 20 years are debilitated? Well, we just, when we're talking about his character, I'm going to go to point three, and I should point out also that these 10 items are ones that the two of you have submitted to me. Um, number three is he didn't fit in with social norms of the day. He didn't drink to excess. He was devout, committed, and loyal to his wife, didn't enjoy extravagant gambling, and London society at that time really enjoyed scandal, I suppose they still do, and drama. And he seemed sort of boring to people. London society at the time was extremely extravagant. Um, if anyone has seen the movie The Duchess, which is about the Duchess of Devonshire, it talks about her extraordinary gambling debts, um, the, the clothing and the expenditures on architecture and hair and food and wine and gambling and race horses and you name it and mistresses and few uh, few men at the time were monogamous and often many elite women, once they had done their appropriate duties of providing an heir to their families, would also take on lovers and um, affairs outside of marriage. And so... In some ways, King George III is such a unique story because he has all of the qualities of someone we would want today. He was thoughtful, conscientious. He cared a great deal about his faith. He cared a great deal about his family. He was devoted. He was interested in, in learning and science, but he wasn't interested in a lot of the things that elite Londoners were, were interested in. And so he was really ostracized from a lot of the other factions because he didn't share that more outlandish behavior. Don't you think a lot of this came from his upbringing? I mean, he was educated by private tutors. He had a very domineering mother who was pretty straight laced. And don't you think a lot of that came from his shyness and his behavior came Some from of it that certainly upbringing. did. It's hard to know how much of it is nature versus nurture because private tutors were not unusual for heirs at the time. They were sometimes kept apart from other society in the hopes of limiting their influences. Domineering mothers were certainly nothing new in European monarchies. I think some of it was definitely his natural shyness, his inclination towards quiet reflection and study, 
his tutors certainly built upon that. So it was definitely partly the influences he had around him and then also partly just how he naturally was and how he saw himself. One of the elements that I didn't, I don't think I included on our list, but is so important to understanding him and the, and the, what happens after is he had a terrible relationship with his father. Actually, that oh. was point number four, and I was just going to go there. Perfect. So you've done well. So Thank he had you. a terrible relationship with his father, and he had a terrible relationship with his son, which was kind of the way of the Georges and of the Georgian monarchs. Uh, I mean, fathers and sons are a complicated story from the beginning of time, but especially in this monarchy, they couldn't seem to get along. And so... I think some of George's choices were also in rebellion against the way he saw his father positioning himself and conducting himself both as a monarch and as a man. And his his relationship with his his son, the heir, really fell apart later. It did, in life, and didn't part it? of that was because of his son was mean and um, insensitive and power hungry, was a profligate spender, probably actually had some of his own mental health challenges in terms of spending because he spent like astronomical fortunes on nothing. And so was constantly asking for more money from his father, putting his father in a really difficult situation with parliament. So it was a multifaceted challenge. But he did have a real close relationship with his daughter, Amelia, and then she died in, in 1810, which was kind of around the time he went off Yeah, the I think deep he had again. a good relationship with a lot of his daughters. As Clay mentioned, they had a lot of children. Uh, they had a very productive marriage, and a lot of them lived until adulthood, not all of them, and they did lose children, which was incredibly traumatic and difficult and perhaps one of the triggers that did cause his first round of illness. Um, but he he seemed to get along better with the daughters and with the sons, which was the way of the Georgian monarchs. They they tended not to get along with their heirs, but often had loving relationships with their other children. Clay, one of the points that comes up, and this is number five, is that he saw himself as British first, first of the Hanoverian kings to do so, first of the British monarchs to be fluent in English. Uh, and he, he, he never he was essentially English. He never left England. Born in England, he lived in England, uh, he spoke English, he also spoke German, but English was his uh, first language. His, his grandfather's first language was German, his great-grandfather's first language was German. They were Germans. And people wonder, how did the German Hanoverians get to the English throne? It's through James I's daughter, uh, who married a Bohemian, married on the continent, and that was the the succession that wound up with the Hanoverians. And so... Um, who continue to be part of the line to this day. So uh, he really believed in England. He, he felt that it was improper for the for the king of, of, of the country to essentially be a foreigner. Um, and so he, he he worked at it. And, you know, I just want to, I don't know if I'm slightly correcting something, I just want to clarify something from earlier. He, the king usually is seen as, as, the great aristocrat amongst other aristocrats, nobles, earls, dukes, and so on. But, but he was suspicious of the aristocrats, and his allegiance was with the people of England. Made a big thing out of that in the course of his time, and, and he wanted them to identify with him, and he wanted to be able to identify with them. And you can't if you're a foreign king speaking the German language. So, you know, he's. I think the, the takeaway from this program is that he was 
a remarkable man in many respects, a good and decent man, a family man, um, a man of virtue. And like Jefferson, he was um, uh, unostentatious. He liked to, he was a gadgeteer. He was a farmer. He liked to play with clocks. He was an astronomer. You know, he was really a very, very interesting human being, and he's gotten a bad rap, um, mostly because of the American Revolution. But if he had never been born things probably would have turned out about the same. I think Franklin was right, and Adams too, that America was going to become an independent nation. Um, so I, I really feel that that it's important for us to try to correct the record, and I really love what Andrew Roberts has done in his book, The Last King of America. He's British. The Last King of America. He makes it clear that this is a British monarch, but he was America's king too. So it's so interesting that you say that. I reviewed, full disclosure, I reviewed this book for the Financial Times, which is a London publication. And so they sent me an advanced copy of the British publication. And it is not titled The Last King of America in Great Britain. And, you know, one of the things that was so interesting is they specifically wanted an American to review it because they wanted someone to speak to how it would be potentially perceived differently in two different nations. And one of the things that I, I agree with you, it is that he is a brilliant biographer. It is unbelievably researched. I got the sense that he was so excited by all the details that he kind of had trouble trimming it because it is not always the biggest page turner. It, it's hefty and full of a ton of information, but I mean, really remarkable information. The one thing that I said in my review, which I think holds true, He's so used to British facility with titles and naming practices that he often fails to include the explanation that when someone gets a title boost, their name changes in Britain. So you can go from being, you know, uh, Walpole to becoming known as a different name based on your rank and doesn't provide that explanation. And Americans are going to miss some of that and not know what he's talking about if you're not accustomed to aristocratic titles. And so I do think that's a really interesting element of this. We share so much in our culture, our language, our, you know, a shared sort of history in past. And yet in some ways it is still, you know, goes down to two different book titles. It's a it's a different world. What was the title in Britain, do you know? King George III. Um, so I find the same problem. You know, my, my daughter's at Oxford studying the Elizabethan and Jacobean age, and it's like Lord Norfolk. And then you have to think, well, which Norfolk? There were 40 of them. You know, your name is Bill Smith one day, and then you're Lord Norfolk the next, or Lord Butte, and everybody's name's changing all of the time, and the names stay the same, but the individuals who hold them differ. And the British intuitively understand all of this and for us it's just like a complete it's like reading tolstoy well and as um you know the french have sort of a different version of that which can often be complicated because we often know french nobility and ministers in history books based on their title as opposed to their like lafayette actual, lafayette or uh, Vergen, who was the French foreign minister during Adam's presidency, his title was the Comte de Vergen. It wasn't actually his name. And so it's just a very interesting, different social practice. So uh, how was your review received before we go to break here? I think it I'd was... like to talk to him about this, some sprout from America who's, you know, some some yank 
taking on his book. Well, I think that's a brilliant. Um, I think that's brilliant that they got her. I think it. so too. And I'd it like to watch really him good, read the review. Yeah, it was a really good editorial choice, I think. Um I mean, first of all, I, I very seriously doubt he read it or knows who I am. He gets a lot of reviews. He's not necessarily scrounging around for them. Yeah, but the the Financial Times it's this a good is one. no slouch publication. Um he you know, I, it was overall it was a very positive review. I really appreciated what he contributed to the story. I learned a great deal. I felt that he presented George in a honest, thoughtful, compassionate, but not overly, you know, sugar-coated way. And I said that as much. I also was honest that I think there were things that, um, you know, Americans weren't necessarily going to get. And it was a little bit of a hefty read, which it is. I mean, I agreed to review it before I knew how many pages it was. And it arrived and I said, holy, and I, you know, expletive, because I did not realize it was going to be so many pages. Um, but it was overall a very So, David, can I, can, can, I, can I take us to a passage in it? Yeah, go give, give us a good setup. So I want to bring Jefferson in, you know, Shock. that guy. On page 487 of what turns out to be a 745-page book. Before the notes. Before the notes, he talks about the famous meeting when Jefferson is in England in 1786, and Adams takes him along to a levee. And Jefferson reports much later, and Adams too, that the king turned his back on Jefferson and and, and really dissed him at this levy. A levy is kind of a ceremonial meet and greet. And so um, <laughs> here's what Jefferson had to say about it later. On my presentation as usual to the king and queen at their levies, it was impossible for anything to be more ungracious than their notice of Mr. Adams and myself. I saw it once that the ulcerations in the narrow mind of that mulish being left nothing to be expected on the subject of my attendance. Well, Andrew Roberts says, that probably didn't happen. <laughs> he says, this this is, he's, you know, he, I don't think he's much of a friend to Jefferson. He said, this is typical Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson says the queen was there. The queen wasn't there. He wouldn't have been invited to the levy if, if, the, if George III was going to treat him badly, that this is just... Uh, yet more of Jefferson's indictment of George III. And then he says, to top off this paragraph, he says, and by the way, uh, when uh, Jefferson's book Notes on the State of Virginia was published in Britain, who bought it? George III. And so he thinks Jefferson is just carrying on with his anti-British, anti-George propaganda here. So what do you think, Lindsay? Uh, that certainly seems consistent with how Jefferson wrote his history. Oh, I could. Yeah, on that on that heretical and ridiculous note, let's take a quick break. We're talking with Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. Um, I think we're on thing three here of our 10 things on the British monarch George III. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, David will get us back on track. You are listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour for our third and final segment of 10 Things About King George III. And uh, Clay, you challenged me to get through those 10 things. I'm not sure I'm up to it, but I'm going to encourage the, the two of you to move along and see how many we can get to. This was originally number six, and I do want to hear from the both of you about this. And that is George III's relationships with prime ministers. I defer to my learned friend here. Yes, I obviously love this subject because um, the British cabinet is such an important part of my first book as a uh, anti-origin, as a, as a model that the Americans were desperately trying to move away from. And let me interject. You have your Zoom camera so well placed that I can see in the chair behind you the soft pillow made of the cover of your book, which is The Cabinet, recently out in paperback. Um, so there's no excuse not to get it. It's a great read. I remember uh, doing a show with you uh, years ago when you were just a child uh, when this <laughs> book came out. And it's a great read. And so I'll, I'll, I'll give that plug. Yeah, and, and who doesn't want a, a pillow of their book cover behind them? Behind me on my Zoom is agrarianism. It's cans of tomato sauce and tomato soup. But <laughs> but anyway, Lindsay. I have, I, I, have, I have interrupted you and you were making a good point, so I apologize. Sorry. But the it, cabinet, no, I the cabinet. it was for your benefit, yeah. No, I appreciate that. And I should say my book, The Cabinet. Uh, so good, good editorial note. Um, so the British cabinet was such an important part of American conception of what the British monarchy was, and for good reason, because as Clay had said, the monarchy had evolved such that it was not an absolute monarchy. It had shared authority with Parliament. And the way that that ran was that the leaders of whatever party was in power formed ministry or cabinet. And that was the foreign minister, the home secretary, the prime minister, people who really held the reins of authority. And if the king was maybe the final voice on major decisions, they were the ones that were supposed to implement it. So they were the ones that were actually coming up with war strategy. They were the ones making sure the ships were going. Uh, they were the ones in, in charge of trade, relationships with the other colonies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And George had the good and bad fortune of having some truly remarkable prime ministers and some pretty terrible bad ministers. And he had the additionally bad fortune of getting along really well with most of the bad ones and liking them personally a great deal and not liking the ones that were maybe more talented, with the exception of William Pitt the Younger, who was his longest serving prime minister, absolutely brilliant, a protege. And um, they weren't close, but they had a good respectful relationship. I'm going to move to the next points and combine a couple of them because both of you have brought this up, but I'd like to dig a little deeper. And that was that George III was a man of science and learning, very much an enlightenment figure, also a farmer. And he liked to tinker with gadgets, as you said earlier, Clay, very much like Jefferson. Let me give you one quick one. He was a an advocate of vaccination. So at a time when when inoculation and vaccination were suspect and many devout Christians felt that it was interfering with God's will and, and people thought it was counterintuitive to, to give people pus serum from smallpox and so on. He became a very strong advocate of Edward Jenner and the vaccination process. And uh, Queen Charlotte had their children vaccinated and became herself the way some of our first ladies do. She became a kind of a public figure on this, on this mission. 
of vaccination. And so that's a really important and brave thing to do. I mean, he, the, we still feel a great deal of reverence for Queen Elizabeth and the royal family, even in this jaded era. Imagine the reverence that average British people felt for the monarchy at that time. And here's this this supreme symbol of British unity uh, saying, this is safe, this is important, we should be doing this. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because earlier you were talking about how he saw himself as a king of the people. And I think overall, I mean, the aristocracy might have felt differently, but overall the people did genuinely love him and respected him and respected his family, respected his love of his family. And, you know, one of the ways that he saw himself as a king of the people is he invested heavily in schools, in education, in libraries. He built uh, tremendous libraries and stocked them with all of the most recent publications and scientific gadgets and things for laboratories. And then he opened them up to experts and to scientists and to students and to people learning. So he wasn't trying to hoard these treasures for himself. He would often go in and, and talk with some of these people, with scientists and people who were trying to discover new things. He wanted to learn from them. And he was a patron of painters, uh, a very important one. And I'm a my background, music. music, Handel, he had a harpsichord that Handel had played. Uh, one of my interests is Dr. Johnson, the great British lexicographer, and he gave Johnson a pension, uh, which Johnson needed. Uh, and there was a famous encounter between the king and Dr. Johnson in the king's library. And by the way, David, the king had a library of more than 60,000 volumes. Jefferson's was 7,000. The King of England, a private library of more than 60,000, which he then donated to the British Museum. Now it's the, the nucleus of the, of the British Library. This was really a really remarkable man. And, and if you're, I won't go into the details of the famous encounter between Dr. Johnson and the King of England, but it's absolutely delightful. They got along, and the King um, made some wild compliment of Johnson for his dictionary. And when Johnson told the story to Boswell, Boswell said, well, that was a bit... I would have expected you to sort of quibble with that a little bit. And Johnson said, who am I to bandy about with my monarch? Now, Johnson was thrilled to be patronized by George III. Jefferson claimed that King George turned his back on him. Now, you talked about that earlier, Clay, read that great passage from the book. And Thomas Paine called him the royal brute of England. So King George III has a pretty bad reputation in America. Um, you know, the madness of King George. How much is Jefferson to blame for that all these years later? Some. Uh, Jefferson couldn't have done this oh, alone. Only some? Only some. Only some? But no, so actually, I'm actually in agreement with Clay on this. Some of it was Jefferson, to be sure, and American propagandists after the revolution. But there were a lot of... Uh, Whig historians as well in London who resented King George's King George III's support for the Tory party. And uh, so they often wrote quite scathing, quite ridiculous histories, which uh, Roberts, Andrew Roberts in, in The Last King of America uh, does, devotes a lot of, of space and time to debunking some of uh, these Whig historians. But they were, one might say, they were the British version of Jefferson. They were, and, and in his, his one little tiny passage on Jefferson in this immense biography, uh, some of which I've already quoted, he says, you know, the king certainly didn't turn his back and snub Jefferson at a levy, but he said, but he should have, 
Jefferson wrote a 28-point indictment of George III in the Declaration of Independence. What did Jefferson expect? All bygones are bygone. Let's just let's talk farming. They kind of needed a villain at that point, and Jefferson made him out the villain. He did, but but it, remember though, in fairness to the to the colonial cause, to our independence movement, and to Jefferson, that at first Jefferson's attack was on Parliament and the Ministry, and the idea was the King is probably our friend and our ally, and he will, when push comes to shove, he will stand up for our rights. It's the yes, Parliament. Right, but, but, but then in the end, after George III sent 30,000 troops, the mood changed dramatically. And at that point, Jefferson now attacks the king in the Declaration of Independence. But in the summary view two years earlier, in his famous pamphlet, Jefferson was still a Commonwealth man. The king is our ally. The king will probably side with us if he only, if the information, back to, back to Lindsay on communication, if we only get the real truth into the king's hands, he will side with the with the colonials. And that wasn't just a posture. That was a, a, a holding area. We have to remember this. The colonists were, were, some were hotheads, but most were not. I mean, the people of the United States were very, very, very reluctant to do this thing. They regarded themselves as British subjects. They talked in English. Their food habits were English. They read English literature. They derived from various strands of the English church. They were British. They were John Bull Americans, Franklin and Adams, certainly. And they did not want to have to pull the trigger on the independence movement. And so they were trying to find any way to fix this thing. And, and you know, I, they wanted representation. I don't think that they were fundamentally against increased taxation. They wanted to be treated as full-on partners in the British world. And, and that's what finally drove them. It was It was British military aggression, which finally drove them into open rebellion. But what's, what say you, Lindsay? I would add to that, they were the biggest consumers of the products of the cult of monarchy. So after the Seven Years' War, there was a huge upswing and production of items that featured the royal family pictures, the family tree, the royal crest, and the biggest market for that was Americans. They bought it up like it was going out of style. So they were very much loyal to the king. They saw the king as their protector. They desperately hoped that that would be the case. This is where the communication piece comes in because we know we've been living through historic moments and historic events. We know how quickly things can change. So if an event happens in, let's say, Boston in April of 1774, Word of it is not going to get to London until early May, if you're lucky, if everything goes right on that transportation, probably more likely mid or late May. So then the king responds, it comes back. So then you're talking about not getting the response to maybe mid-late June again, if you're lucky, probably more like July. Half a year can go by. Half a year could go by. So, and think about everything that can happen in six months. And so it's just a tremendous, um, there was just this impossibility of being governed with that type of limitation of communication and an impossibility of letting the king actually know how people felt and, and, and what was happening. If I could return to the point I was making earlier, <laughs> it is, and when, in asking if Jefferson has something to do with this bad reputation of King George III. It's always easier to prosecute a war against one bad actor than it is an entire people. And our current situation, I, I offer as proof of that. 
And I think he must have recognized that. Here's there's the bad guy. We got to go after him. Well, Jefferson understood propaganda, of course. You know, he was a brilliant propagandist. Uh, he also really understood the changing mood of the American people at this time. He also understood that the war, that the actual violence, the bloodshed, the brutality of the British, and particularly bringing in mercenaries from the continent, was galling to the American colonials. At the same time, I think Jefferson, like many others, thought the average British citizen, if they understood us, would would sympathize with us. And, and I think the Americans always felt that the British, in the end, would be on our side, first in this war, and then during the embargo crisis, and then during the War of 1812. There was always this thought that the British people are the ones who will end these wars because they will grow weary of this and they don't they don't like this fratricide. That's very interesting. I would add I would add one really important element to that, which is that um, relatively recent scholarship by there's a great book called American Scripture by Pauline Mayer, and it looks at the Declaration of Independence and its international audience. So Americans were rebelling against a monarchy at a time when most countries were run by monarchies and the people that they were trying to appeal to, to be their allies and to give them support were run by kings. And you can see for the French king, the Spanish king, et cetera, et cetera, why a rabble trying to overthrow a different king would maybe not necessarily be the most enviable ally. And so the declaration is actually a list of reasons why the revolution is justified and why the Americans are acting rationally. And it is intentionally not a statement against all monarchies. It is against one monarch who has acted inappropriately. And if one looks at the text of it, you can see that it is a justification of why King George III and King George III alone must go, but not monarchy per se. Just one last thing, David, about the, uh, the royal brute of England. You know, Paine was a propagandist of, of a much more visceral sort than than Thomas Jefferson, and he made up that uh, statement. But he's equal opportunity. When Louis the Sixteenth was beheaded uh, by the French Revolution, uh, the last name of 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 the of the of the family was Caput, which in Latin means head. And so um, at that point, Thomas Paine said, "Louis Caput has lost his caput." <laughs> so he loved that kind of thing. He was a he, he he liked that kind of raw wit. We are up to our final point, and that is that George the Third is reported to have said that if George Washington resigned his commission after the war, he was the greatest man in the world. I don't know if I have that quote right or not. One of you can correct me. Thank you. Well, so I think I think it's that he would be the greatest man in the world. It, w it was ahead of time as he was learning of the possibility of this, if I'm understanding correctly. But I think there's also, I mean, it's not, I don't know how firm the evidence of that is, but I, nonetheless, it is a very valuable phrase because it indicates the time at which this is taking place, the time at which most rulers did not give up power. Just a little bit later, Napoleon comes to office. He certainly did not, you know, give up his authority. And so the the reflection... George III wouldn't have either, would he? No, he was a king. He was supposed to be in power. That's what kings did. So I think, you know, that is a, it is a reflection of the moment, even if some of the evidence isn't as firm as we would like. Well, first of all, you know, they're all thinking about Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar comes back from his time in Gaul. He won't disband his army. Um, he, he starts a civil war. He becomes the dictator of Rome. 
that's that's as common a a, a a piece of knowledge in the in the 18th century as George Washington was the is the father of our country is to us. So everyone's thinking along these lines, and this is the age of the Enlightenment. So we're we're positing a republic, and George III comes from a monarchical world. He's looking at an emerging republic, and he is himself aware of all of this literature. He knows of Bolingbroke's book on the Patriot King and so on. So he he's aware of all of this, and it's not that he wants Britain to be a republic, far from it. But there's an admiration for anyone with that power that George Washington had accumulated by the end of the war who would voluntarily give up that power because it was essentially unprecedented in human history. True or not. Well, with the exception maybe of Cincinnatus, but that's why Washington became the American Cincinnatus. He was our American Cincinnatus. You, you can see him in Richmond, Virginia, and the great pedestrian statue in the, in the rotunda of the Virginia Capitol, designed by... Mr. Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> oh, look at you gagging! You know, at the end of the, dude, at the end of the last segment, now I make one little, in a program that has said almost nothing about Thomas Jefferson, I make one little statement about the fact that he's the greatest architect in American history. And I know I, I rolled my this. eyes because you didn't say that he was the greatest architect of American history, but you were thinking it, and I knew you were thinking it, and so I was rolling my eyes. This is fun, David. Lindsay, we so appreciate you. I'm glad that you are now a regular. Uh, correspondent of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and we will see all of you next week for another exciting and important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826. And this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson.